0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Diversity Matters, where we explore all things diversity, equity, and inclusion-related. I'm your host, Oscar Holmes IV, and I'm so, so excited to welcome our guest, the amazing Candace Bimbo, to the guest chair today as we talk about Black theology, faith, and feminism. And I'll ask Candace to share a bit more about herself when we get into the interview, but just to give you a little bit about her background. Candace Marie Bimbo is a theologian, essayist and creative who situates her work at the intersections of beauty, faith, feminism, and culture. She is the founder of Zion Hill Media Group, which is a media boutique that produces messages of hope and healing across various platforms. Above everything, Candace is most proud of establishing the Louise Marie Foundation a memorial scholarship in honor of her late mother. She is a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, FASCII, and hold degrees from Tennessee State University, North Carolina Center University, and Duke Divinity School. Candice, welcome to Diversity Matters. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsors. Walls-Torres Group is a boardroom and C-suite-level consulting firm serving philanthropic clients, corporations, and academic institutions. The firm's focus areas are strategy, governance, and leadership. And they have a special interest in social enterprise and inclusive excellence. The firm is a certified minority and woman-owned business and is a strong advocate for education and youth philanthropy. Their featured nonprofit partner, Giving Cycle, is a leader in this area and has sparked the joy of generosity in over 1,500 young people. I'm so glad that you're here with us. When I was thinking about the creation of Diversity Matters, uh-huh. I knew that I wanted to create a space where we could have hard conversations about DEI topics that was accessible to the general public, but was also still intellectually rigorous. Right. Right. So instead of just trying to like quickly throw something together just to get my podcast launched, I like I spent a great deal of time really thinking about, you know, how I wanted to create this first season right so the topics that i thought were necessary to cover and who i wanted as guests for the first season so i immediately thought about you because oh, <laughs> i'm telling this truth because i've been a fan of your work from afar for a long time mm. and i truly believe that you know we can't talk about black liberation without centering black theology faith
1: right and feminism right we can't
0: we can't i think it's necessary let's get started okay You've been really open in your writings and your podcast, The Great Red Lip Theology. And in fact, I must admit, your first episode really had me in tears because, you know, as you talked about your own struggles. Yeah, uh, you. <laughs> so you were very transparent about that, yeah, yeah. Uh, which I really appreciate. But for some people who may not already know you, uh, what would you say your story is and why is it important for people to tell their
1: stories? I tell people that at at the core of me, I am a Black girl raised in the South and in the church at this moment where hip-hop is growing up. And so I am both a child of the Black church and a child of hip-hop culture. And all of those those two worlds that raised me well weren't congruent worlds. Mm -hmm. And I am the daughter of... A single mother who believed that though the church had its problems, that it was still the best place for her to raise a Black girl safely in the 90s. And I am a product of a generation of Black kids who grew up in homes without their dad. And um, while I'm not one whose father's absence led me to destructive, like, communal behaviors, mm-hmm. it had an impact still, right? And so, this work that I come to is is at a moment where I honor the totality of those stories, right? The totality mm-hmm. of all of those experiences and how they formed and converged to make me, but also how They've impacted so many others like me and gives us room, gives us space, gives us permission to both reinterpret and reimagine the world around us, both in from a spiritual and theological perspective, but also from a cultural perspective, right? And to think through what it means for us to now be leaders, what it means for us to now be parents, what it means for us to now honor that we have a lot of the power to shape differently a world than our parents and our grandparents shape for us. And so I think that for me, when I boil, when I like bear it down, I'm really just a black girl trying to make sense of the world that I was given and to honor the one that I'm now called to lead and create.
0: Awesome. Mm-hmm. So you do a lot of this work through your podcast, Red Lip Theology, mm-hmm. and I know it is centered in Black girl magic, but <laughs> just want to let you know, you do have some men out there who also listeners. <laughs> Thank
1: you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. <laughs> but for people who may
0: not be familiar with it, can you talk about, you know, the impetus for your podcast, Red Lip Theology? What are you trying to achieve? And you don't have to mention all of them, but you talk about these Red Lip Ten Commandments. So you want to speak a little bit about that?
1: Right. So what's funny is Red lip Theology came out of this moment where I was being really snarky with one of my white seminary classmates. Mm-hmm. Because I got my MD from Duke and Duke required before you graduated that you take a black church studies course, meaning that you had to sit with for a semester black liberation theology mm-hmm. and womanist theology. And I'm dealing with, you know, white men, young white men who think that they know everything and that if you are black or if you're not white doing theology, that you're not doing it for white people. Mm -hmm. And so my my classmate asked me, he was like, well, Candace, do you consider yourself a black theologian or do you consider yourself a regular theologian? Mm -hmm. And I very Quickly quipped. I was like, I'm a red lip theologian. And he was like, What's that? I said, Me. And he said, Who created that? I said, Me just now. Right. And like everybody in the library, the people who heard us kind of started laughing. But the more that I sat with it, the more I really honored that that's true. That like for me, red lip theology is giving the permission again to be intentionally transgressive Mm -hmm. and honoring that all of these different spaces like the ones that i said help to make me are not inherently sinful and evil you know things right like there's a way that like church bashed Mm hip-hop right for not being quote-unquote sacred but the church had as much uh, problems as an institution, as hip-hop as an institution does, right? And so, like, right, right. Red Theology, because the truth for a lot of the girls that I grew up with and the sisters that I know from my neighborhoods, who may love God, they were never going to come in contact with womanist theology because as you know there are some conversations that unfortunately just remain in academic spaces Mm -hmm. and like what I kept finding was that like red lip theology was one of I mean that womanist theology was one of those right that for that was really and largely like this conversation that was held within the academy or within highly educated black theological spaces and that just didn't resonate with my friends right like that right, right. i think that you know one of the things that i hold is when i was getting a master's in sociology my advisor told me he said you never get education simply for education's sake he's like you always get education to do something with it and to help right. to uh, break down the barriers that are between those who have it and those who don't. And I took that to heart really deeply. And red Theology really became this moment where I was like, okay, how do I bring these conversations that I'm having in the spaces that I'm in, these theological concepts that I'm learning, how do I bring those into a... Mainstream conversation that my friends or their sisters just like me can, who may be professional in other spaces, not theological ones, can have access to, right? right. And also, as a millennial, um, or as my grandma says, like a millennium, um, <laughs> <laughs> that we don't feel the need to believe that we have to choose between one thing or another. And so relic theology is inherently this this move to say that you don't have to choose between the sacred or the secular in order to honor that you are divine. That all of these that nine times out of ten, what we consider to be secular is because of how our society or culture deems a thing, right? But there is beauty and honor in being who we are in very like tongue in cheek ways, and very like brash and in your face ways, and then very like holistic and let's have this real transparent and tough moment ways. Like we have different kind, kinds of conversations that really lead us back to the question of. What I think is at the heart of Relic Theology is who are we truly meant to be and how are we doing our best to live into that? And I think that you can't do that without being honest. You can't do that without being transparent. And you actually cannot do that without holding all of the systems that formed you accountable for the ways that they may have failed you. And I think that that's where a lot of people rock with Relic Theology. And I think that's where a lot of folks don't rock with Relic Theology, Mm -hmm. is because we kind of want to have this, particularly when it comes to the church. And it's almost like that, the same way with like education, Mm -hmm. the higher up people get it, right? Is that like we want to say that these institutions work if you work them right but right. like but the truth is for those of us who work them we can say like they work because they inherently pit us against each other right like mm-hmm. they work because they allow for some of us to gain access and be successful And for the majority of us to not be. And so when you're honest about that and say, yeah, let's rethink better institutions, then people get, they get scary because they created their entire identity around those institutions.
0: Right. That's a perfect segue to the next question. I love that you remind people that you can be both wretched and righteous. Exactly. Right. But it's really important for people to see you as a Black feminist Christian. So what does that identity mean to you and why it's so important for people to understand that?
1: Um, Because I first and foremost tell people that God made me Black. God mm-hmm. made me a Black woman. Like that was the way that God decided that I would show up in this world that was the lens through which I am to see the world and that I'm to be seen right and like Mm -hmm. nothing is wrong with that the only issue is when I am mistreated because I'm a black woman right Right. and the reason why it's important to me is because if I honor that this lived experience is the one that God chose for me to live into is that I'm called to be in this world a black woman. If I believe that there is that that's sacred and that's divine, then I push for a world that honors that sacredness and that that divinity. And a world that affirms Black girls and Black women and keeps us safe, to me, is a world that God wants, right? And being mm-hmm. a Black feminist Christian, to me, is a no brainer. <laughs> like, that, right. like I, I, that to to be in a space and in a world where I live, move, and have my being as a Black woman. And that, you know, we are all supposed to push to to create safety and to honor each other. I think that's the world that God wants. And I reconcile that personally for me. As And I tell people that my commitment to feminism is as theological as it is political. And that's right. why I also think that it's a, and believe that it's important to name being a black feminist Christian because we're taught so much and so often that feminism and Christianity are polar opposites right that like mm-hmm. if you are Christian like you can't be feminist and most of the time people who say that are people who a don't read the Bible and B don't know what feminism actually is mm-hmm. and so this notion too, for Black women who are, for whom my work is primarily directed towards, but a lot of Black women and particularly single Black Christian women who desire partnership think that saying that they are honoring that they're Black feminist pushes men away. Right, and like more than being a Black feminist, they want to be somebody's wife. They want right. to partner, and I get that. And for me. Saying continuously that I'm a Black Christian feminist speaks into the space that says, hey, like this is the experience that God gave us to live into, which means that God wants not only us, but all Black girls and all women, Black women, to be sacred, seen as as sacred and protected. So that means that we need to and our experiences lean into and speak to these ideals that give us that press for that equality and to tell them that you can do that and be aligned biblically. And I, you know, there are scriptures that I speak to that talk about feminism in scripture, right? That these were not, when you look at the biblical narrative, these aren't women who are cowering, right? Like these, sure. These are women who are empowered and kind of take their destiny and the destiny of their families in their hands. And I think that, lastly, it's important that we also, in addition to having this political and this theological commitment, and in addition to showing that it's okay for Black women to to hold that together, I think it's also important for us to reclaim our faith from white evangelicalism right that when i'm talking about jesus and i'm talking about god i'm not talking about white men right like mm-hmm. i'm not i'm not talking about the faith structure that so many of us believed in and were given because that was what was passed down to us but i'm talking about progressive understandings of faith that black folk have always leaned into since the time that we were brought here, even before, you know, that we have always read ourselves into the love of God. We've always seen ourselves as divine and like reclaiming that from white evangelicalism that seeks to, before we even get to talking about black feminist Christianity, wants to make the black demonic. You know what I'm saying? And that to say that like all of these things can be true, but more importantly, it matters how you see God and that you see God as not somebody who, who sees you as inherently inferior to white people, which is what evangelical Christianity really gives us.
0: Right. I know we both agree that everyone should be feminist, so not just women, but men as well. Right. (laughs) But again, one of the things I love about you is your transparency and the fact that you admitted that you did think that you were inferior before because you were a woman. So clearly people got you past that thinking. So what advice do you have for other people who may need to get past that thinking as well?
1: I think the first thing that I would say is... The beauty now of social media and of the digital space is that we have access, global access, to different thinkers. It's hard to evolve if everyone in your community thinks that you're the crazy woman, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it's hard to think outside of narratives if nobody else will think outside of those narratives alongside of you. And I think that, you know, the beauty... That I love about social media is that I'm constantly getting messages from sisters who are like, before I followed you and before I follow the women that you talk to across social media, I thought that I was by myself. And I've been able to find community in your comments or community in Mm -hmm. hashtags. And I would say, like, one... That there's a beauty that's being found in creating new community, even if it's virtual, so that you can know that you're not by yourself as you start on this journey. Mm -hmm. The second thing that I will say is that you have to give yourself permission for absolutely every single thing that you believe to be challenged. One of the things that was the hardest for me, and I tell people this all the time, was that I had this unhealthy and unrealistic expectation that I had to defend God, right? (laughs) That, like, Mm. me, who, like, actually came in this world with a finite (laughs) number of days, years that I would live, had this, like call to defend the literal creator of the world right and that that belief that i had that that was my responsibility kept me from from ever really engaging and encountering any conversation that would challenge what i believe right and part of what what matters about diversity inherently right is that like we need other perspectives. Like, like the moment that a dominant perspective is the only perspective is the moment that we've all lost, right? Mm. And what I realized I was doing was that I was saying that this was the only way to know God, this was the only way to know Jesus, and if you didn't know both of them the way that I did, you were wrong. Now, the world is made up of a billion people, <laughs> billions of people, right? right. <laughs> how how dare I say that I have the market <clears throat> cornered on what faith and God and Jesus are supposed to be known and look like? Freeing myself up to be challenged was huge, and it was tough, but it also... Uh, gave me room to honor that like yeah there were things that I didn't necessarily agree with but I was always scared to say you know what I'm saying like because right. what right. in my crazy thinking all of us who have evolved and grew in in our faith walks I believe that there were always seeds along the way that sometimes we buried because we just didn't believe that in our particular context those were questions that we were supposed to ask, or those were beliefs that we were supposed to hold, right? right? Being in a space where I was able to challenge it gave me room to be like, well, you know, I never really rock with that particular understanding, or mm-hmm. I always thought this, right? And then there came a moment where we talked about that first episode of that podcast of Relo Theology, but I had a really tough like, four-year period. Mm -hmm. And there came a moment in that four-year period, and I think it does not have to come with such trauma and pain as mine did, but I believe there comes a moment in everybody's faith journey that gives them the opportunity to ask the question, what do I really believe? Right. And some of us take that moment to heart and genuinely ask ourselves, what do we really believe? And some people don't take that moment to heart and they regurgitate what they have been given. For me, I took to heart to say I have been on this journey of moving progressively in faith conversations, but there was also that moment where I was like, what do I believe? If I was asked today what I believe, what is it? And I'll never forget, like I wrote on a piece of paper, and I still have the piece of paper. I wrote that I believe Jesus was born. I believe that Jesus died. I believe that Jesus was coming back again. And I mm-hmm. wrote the fourth thing that I believe in the darkest moments of my life, God holds my hand and walks with me. Right. That was the four things <laughs> that I developed a new and endearing faith on. And I think that when people ask that question of themselves and they ask it honestly, it's a different answer than what we have all, maybe a different answer. And it leads us to other open doors. And so I'll say that that's the, that for me community and allowing yourself to be challenged and sitting with the challenge really is the most profound and beautiful way to begin to journey into much more freeing and much more liberating articulations of your faith,
0: right, so in speaking about faith, I think we both have much love for the black church, yeah, but in many of your red lip theology episodes, you express your disappointment, and I hope it's mm-hmm. not too strong if I say your disdain for the black Mm-mm. church, mm-hmm. which i I also have some myself, right, but particularly in one of your episodes, you Stated the black church is going to black church. So, what exactly do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, like I am the embodiment of that little boy who um, <laughs>
0: I'm tired of this. Who
1: <laughs> I'm tired of this church, like, like, and I say the black church is going to black church because, as an institution, the black church upholds this notion that above anybody, black men, black cisgender, heterosexual men Mm -hmm. are to lead and to be protected. And we understand historically that during the height of Jim Crow reconstruction and the civil rights movement, when they were not, when Black men were not respected Mm -hmm. in society, they could go to the church and be pastor and be deacon. We also know (laughs) That at the same time that they could do that, Black women were experiencing the same kinds of mistreatment, not only in community, but in their own homes, right? Mm -hmm. And so there will always be this belief, this ideology that's pushed by Black church that says that anything that inherently affirms the other beyond the space that they believe that they should be affirmed, meaning... Black women, Black children, LGBTQ persons, like this ideology that all of us are sacred, divine, and we should challenge our faith narratives that suggest otherwise. When we get in spaces that are looking at us and saying, nah, like that, we really need to challenge that, right? And I think that our Black churches as an institution, there are some as pockets that and some as individual churches that really try to do that, but ultimately, like there are a lot of of congregation as an institution itself, the church is really tethered to this idea that silence and maintaining the status quo is what we need to do as Black people in order to get ahead, and that's never ever <laughs> that's never ever going to get us anywhere. Right. For me, as somebody who deeply loves the Black church, I'm a church girl. I'm often invited to speak at churches. And I do, if, particularly if I have mm-hmm. a good relationship with the leadership, because some of my friends pastor. So I do it because I support them. But the right. truth is, is that there's a very real intention to dishonor progressivism as an institution. I don't necessarily see myself as one who is committed to the church in the way that I used to be, right? So I tell people, like, my ministry stuff is primarily wilderness. That's Mm -hmm. where we got free, like, in wilderness and hush-harbors and doing all of that. and Because I think that ultimately... And this may be, you know, Oscar, this may be a little pessimistic. Well, I think ultimately the church will always be the same kind of institution Mm. that it has been. Right. If I honor that I know people who are changing it, but at the same time I know that, like, there's only so much they can do, then how much more responsibility is it for me and for others to create these other kinds of breathing pockets? Mm. where if um, there are sisters who are going to remain in the church or people who are going to remain committed to the church, where they can go grab some air, (laughs) some fresh air and teaching, and then, you know, go back into these spaces. I'm committed to those kinds of spaces. Even as I say, like, the black church is a black church because I don't see the revolution that a lot of people say that it will have. I don't see it. I don't see it as a whole. I see it as you'll find your church and that pastor who will, who affirms and who is progressive in theology and preaches a liberating gospel Right. and whatever city, whatever town, whatever state, wherever somebody can grab onto live stream and watch him or her or them. That'll be great. But right what about the people who don't live in those cities right what about the people who who will not have the benefit of the bible studies or the small groups that are in that way because everybody in their state or everybody in their city pastors think the same way i right. think that when i say things like that i i, I said that the other it's so funny that you brought that up because i said that the other day so one of my homeboys, we were on the phone for three hours after he got out of a church meeting. He's a pastor. And his a particular social program that he was really excited about was on the floor for the church to vote on because his leadership council was mm-hmm. divided. And basically the issue Was that while they thought that these services were important, they thought that it would bring a different caliber of person to their church. And they didn't want that. That's not what they were known for. Mm. And when the congregation agreed and voted down this program, he was so angry. And I mean, we talked for hours and and he got mad at me when I finally was like, what did you expect? Right. And he was like, "Which I said, these are black church people, middle class, upper middle class, who went to school, who even though they give and donate, they fundamentally think they're better
0: Mm.
1: (laughs) than black folk who are caught out on addiction or homelessness because somehow we think that those are things that they did to themselves. Right? And so we had this long conversation because I was like, I actually would have been shocked if your people said yes. You know what I'm saying? And like, and he was mad, but I was like, no, like, we actually gotta be honest about some of the people that we pastor. We gotta be honest about some of the reputations of our congregations. And just because we may want to change them, it don't mean that they want it.
0: Right. One of the important criticisms that you highlight that even in progressive church spaces, because I definitely agree with you, we can find pockets of black church, you know, black churches being progressive, Mm -hmm. uh, but you still talk about like how sexism is so prevalent. And I think you brought up a really good point in your podcast when you talked about, or you question where are the people going who are being mentored? Five, you know these progressive pastors and why is that a huge gap between the male associate uh, ministers who get in churches but the female associate ministers don't get into church so can you expound upon that mentoring gap and what do we do to fix it
1: yeah it all gets on my nerves I church because part of it is that even in progressive spaces, you still see men who are held up as like the beacons of a different way, right? Mm -hmm. There are a few women, but you still see the men, the brothers who are held up as like, oh, these are brothers who preach about Tamar and they preach Mm -hmm. about sexual assault and they preach about loving queer people and then and they get they get highlighted as the new generation of black church or the new wave of black church and you're like yes finally but then when you put a microscope and you see okay how many you see the disparity between the male mentors that they have mentees that they have who get churches mm-hmm. and the female mentees that they have who get churches you recognize that even in these progressive spaces, progressive leaning spaces, you still have this same good old boys' network, right? Right. And part of it is that we say it and nobody wants to call it out because these are supposed to be the good ones. Like, if you can, <laughs> it's almost folks are like, okay, well, we could have much worse, y'all. Let's not rock the boat here. But the truth is, no, we are replacing one kind of sexist. Um, narrative for another and the only thing that's different is because they're men and they preach something they preach a different kind of gospel right right and that's still the problem right and i think that part of what matters and what has to matter is us being honest and saying where are the people like where are the women where are the sisters where are the queer voices and not in a hokey hoity toity way, but in a don't don't invite me just to come for
0: the Women's Day service. The Women's
1: Day services, right? right. Day services. Like, let me come and have me there in a way that's honored and respected, right? And have my voice uh, validated. And I think that it also it also matters that us in the pew say something. And I say this to. To people all the time when they reach out to me, I believe that the pew has power to say, like, Mm -hmm. we actually want to hear from more women. (laughs) To say we actually want to hear from speakers that have a diversity in age. We actually Mm want to see a diversity of lived experiences in our preachers and in our speakers and in our teachers. And because I love this church... I'm going to hold this church accountable to giving me that. I think that we kind of believe that as members of congregations, we don't have that much say, but we do, right? That we can go to these meetings and say, "What? why are we only hearing from men? Right. Why are we not having kinds of conversations that really matter? And um, I do a lot of consulting work with pastors, who reach out to me, who are like, I don't want to be (laughs) trifling. Can you help me not to be? (laughs) And so- like, I think that's great. Yeah.
0: I think that's the point of Diversity Matters is, you know, we all have blind spots and it's all about doing better and getting better.
1: Yes, it is. We'll sit down and case in point, like one of the pastors that I worked with just recently- we sat down and we looked at the church's calendar for 2020 and we looked at what uh, major events they had. This particular pastor is also one who outlined sermons and sermon series for the entire year. Mm-hmm. When we sat down and really looked at the church's calendar, I said to this pastor, I said, every significant population group other than black men, you are just giving a throwaway nod to. Mm. Um, and I was like, what are you talking about? And we went through and we were like, children, oh, let's just give them this back to school drive, <laughs> you know, this winter wonderland and trunk or treat, right? Right. Women, let's do something for breast cancer, let's do mm-hmm. something for Mother's Day, right? You have Suicide, mental health, suicide prevention day. I was like, these are things that are abstract from the actual teaching and preaching of the church. If you want voices to be lifted in ways that are healing and holistic, like we really got to think through what you're teaching and we really got to think through what you're preaching and we can't see lifting them up, and we can see honoring their voices as ancillary to what we are already doing, right? I think getting in spaces, doing that kind of work has been really helpful because, yeah, a lot of pastors don't know, right? Or they're resistant to it. And now we're in a moment where you can't be resistant and survive. You can't, like, there are Too many movements that are happening that literally will render you irrelevant if you do not honor that the winds of change really are sweeping up our country and you either get caught or you get left, right? I think that even in progressive spaces, these pastors and leaders have to allow themselves to be held accountable And not just rest on the, oh, well, like, it could be worse. So because it could be worse, don't say nothing to me. You know, and a lot of them sometimes have that kind of perspective. And it gets, like, this is the same thing I've dealt with. It's just in skinny jeans and a button down.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. So we talked about it a little, but this is a question from an anonymous submitter. Mm -hmm. So this person wants to know. What are some of the taboo issues that are in the Black church that we need to speak more openly about, and how should we publicly deal with it?
1: Um, I definitely think that the first one comes to mind is just uh, sexual trauma and sexual assault. Mm-hmm. There was a study that was published a few years ago that said before a Black girl turns 18, 60% of them would have experienced some form of sexual. Violence and inappropriate contact within their own home. Hmm. And there was a study after that that talked about the numbers were actually equal to and not very different among Black boys. And part of that study suggested that it may actually be higher because Black boys are often afraid to speak about experiencing sexual violence and sexual assault, right? For fear right. of what assumptions may be made about how they view masculinity.
0: Right. Or even the culture that really exactly. um, celebrate, like if an older woman is hitting on a kid.
1: Exactly. Right. On a kid. And that's supposed to mean something about who he is as a man and what he's able to accomplish and achieve. What we know, right, is that. There are girls, boys, men, women, people, individuals who are in our communities and in our congregations who are suffering literal violence Mm -hmm. and who are in their homes in fear. That is something that we have to talk about. That is something that I don't believe pastors can do or should do on their own. There are trained professionals and I encourage pastors to collaborate with the trained professionals in their cities and in their communities that are trained to deal with sexual trauma and sexual violence and speak to the resources that people need. And part of when people come outsource those, because the truth is, is that Most of us need more than just pastoral counseling in order to get over that, right? Like, we need trained professionals. Right. And to that same end, another issue that we talk about very flippantly but need to be much more serious about in the church is mental health in our community. Right. I am one of those who my own mental... I've talked very freely Right. And openly about being someone who lives with a depressive condition and once was hospitalized for it. I do not take very lightly to pastors who use mental health conditions as like preaching moments. When they say stuff about being schizophrenic in your faith or having right. a bipolar praise and bipolar prayer life. Like those things that get shouts, but I really ugly and like ignorant right. attacks yeah like that there are stuff like you can't be a christian and be depressed like you pray right. depression stupid stuff right again it matters for us to have trained professionals who are yeah no that's actually like that and also there are many people who are professional trained individuals who deal with mental health But also do it at the intersection of professionalism and Christian beliefs, right? And you can't find folks who are like, my mother was one who was deeply Christian and was also a mental health nurse practitioner and would tell people all the time, you need God and every other qualified professional to be your best self, right? And we have to change the narrative in our communities, starting with the church, like If God endowed doctors and teachers with what they need for us to live into our well, our best selves, the same is true for mental health professionals, right? Right. And lastly, I think of the, a lot of things we can work on, but like the big three of that last one, I think is that we have to push our churches to think differently about sexuality and gender identity. Mm -hmm. We are at a moment where, as people, we have more language than we ever had before to identify who we are and who we genuinely know ourselves to be. And um, we need congregations and we need pastors that are educated about those things and don't Just speak foolishness into these voids of God created Adam and Eve and Adam and Steve, or that if you are born a man, you are a man. You know, Google is still free. And so are library cards. And you can actually read about gender identity and you can read about sexual orientation and become informed and speak from an informed place that honors the reality of people's experiences and the truth that god is very much love i am right so i identify as as a process theologian in that i believe that i don't see god as this fixed power that hovers over all of us controlling every movement right i believe that god impacts the world as much as God is impacted by the world. Mm -hmm. And I believe that God has had to shift and push and evolve even as creation and humanity has shifted and evolved, right? Like if we see God as this ultimate parent, when a child is born, that parent doesn't know everything that that child is eventually going to be and do, right? They give that child, the freedom to grow into themselves. And as a parent, they adjust, right? Oh, I thought he was, he was going to be this way. He, they're this way. Let me figure this out. I think God is the same way. And I think that the language that we have around how we know ourselves, how we can, I have been, this may be a very roundabout way to answer this question, but like I have been in recent weeks Mm-hmm. Just amazed at the conversations around Zaya Wade and Dwayne Wade and Gabrielle Union coming out to support their daughter in her transition. Right. But the beauty that a 12-year-old in the year 2020 can say, this is actually who I am supposed to be. And that there are adults that were like, okay, let me read <laughs> right, and let right. me surround But my more
0: importantly, parents, right?
1: Yes. Yeah parents. Exactly. Let me read, let me surround myself with folks who can explain to me what my child is going through. And let me surround myself with people who are also going to honor that this is as much a transition for them as it's a growth period for me. Absolutely. I think if humanity is able to do that, how much more is God able to do that, right? That there is grace for us as that God gives us grace as we evolve as humans and that we have to give that same grace to each other. And I think that those of us who are, I honor, and I will say this, I honor that as a writer, I have a lot more leeway than others do because I'm not beholden to a deacon board or, or leadership. Right. And at the same time, I do think that it's, it's incumbent upon us who believe that we have been called to walk with people through their lives in a spiritual capacity to really think about how we are addressing the social issues of our time and how the way we address them speak to the ever-present, ever-evolving grace of God. And if, if we are not speaking to that and if we are speaking in these ways of rigidity that suggest that God is fixed in this one way and all of us have to be, then I, I think we're missing the marking totally. So those are if I had to name like three um that are most pressing, I think that those would be my three issues.
0: Right. So I would love to talk to you more, mm-hmm. but for the sake of time, I want to ask you two mm-hmm. final questions. Of course. One is a question from a, another anonymous submitter. I want to get that question in. I'll say that one first. So what role okay. do black millennials play in reclaiming the narrative that faith is the auspices of the conservative right?
1: Ooh. Wow. Um, Very quickly. I I think that, I think, Millennials, particularly that the Black Lives Matter moment and movement when when young folks took to Ferguson mm-hmm. and really showed up the church
0: <laughs> and right. showed
1: up church leaders, I think that millennials, I think gen Z included, are forcing us to contend with the ways that faith, religion as an institution has inherent respectability politics in it that will not keep us safe, right? Right. And that part of where the, the rub is amongst millennials and younger versus, you know, boomers and up, even including some Gen X, right, is that is right. that we're like, yeah, no, we are not going to... They're going to kill us anyway, right? <laughs> like, uh-huh, we, live, right. we live in a world and societies that literally hate us for just breathing. Like, there's nothing that we can do that's going to keep them from killing us. If there's nothing that we can do, we might as well be free, and we might as well be ourselves. That, when I am going back to me saying Black church is always going to Black church... That's a completely, those kinds of ideologies war against each other, right? I think that millennials and young people are showing that, yeah, there's not a lot of difference in our communities from people who are churched and think the worst of Black youth, as there are the difference between faith leader, faith folks in the larger Society who think the worst of black people, right? Right. That's a real thing. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like that's a real thing. And so I think think having honest conversations about the mirror that millennials and young people hold up to institutions like the church is important.
0: Right. I will give you the last word in terms of what future projects do you have in the works and uh, what are some things that we should be on the lookout for that's coming from you?
1: I'm really excited because, so right now we're in the season of Lent, and uh, when we come back in Easter, so I'm off of social media for Lent, but I'm really excited Mm -hmm. because when I come back in Easter, I get to announce a huge project that I've been working on, and I'm really, really excited about Mm -hmm. it. No exclusive
0: uh, for Diversity Matters?
1: (laughs) I want to. I really, really do, but the ink isn't dry, and so they keep telling me, "All right, until the ink is dry, keep." I understand. Like, and I would say. I'm not good. This is how you know, like, God has a sense of humor because I have never been good at like keeping secrets. <laughs> long. Like, I'm the kind that's like, okay, I gotta tell you this, but you can't tell nobody. Kind of person. Right. <laughs> this is like, this has been since December, so this is the first time that I've mm-hmm. ever held and not dropped hints or and I'm right. and I am fundamentally proud of myself that like I even so much because like my grandma was saying to me the other day. So I'm so proud of you because you can't hold water and you have literally <laughs> held it. So I'm really excited about that. But I'm really excited because Zion Hill Media Group is something that I crowdsourced for at the beginning of this year because one of the transitions that I really felt called to make was the transition from faith commentary to content creation, right? I mm-hmm. think that we can mm-hmm. always... Talk about what's wrong. But I think it's a different move when we try to create. Ways that help us be better and help us do better. Right. Um. One of the ways that I really felt called to do that was to continue projects that had done like Lemonade syllabus, the Get Clear in August Digital right. Sabbatical Challenge, and and like even moving into scripted and unscripted entertainment. And so Zion Hill Media Group really gave me the ability to start doing that, and I'm really excited because. We raised $33,000. Excellent. Thank you to begin really working on bringing Zion Hill Media Group to life. And part of bringing it to life is a lifestyle, a faith and entertainment lifestyle website that as a writer, very quickly as a writer, I'm always being pitched stories. And when I talk to my editors at other places, They're like, we don't have room for that. Like, we don't know where we would put that. And then I got tired of hearing that. And like, one of my editors, I love Essence, and that's home for me. One of my editors there was like, Candace, like, you keep wanting this space to be created and made room in all of these other places. Why don't you make it? Part of Zion Hill Media Group is this place where... These progressive conversations, like the one that we just had, essays can um, in long form and think piece are available. And where we also have a kind of hub for people to be able to identify and find progressive podcasts that they may not have ever heard of, but but they know that, okay, I can listen to these people and really kind of find my tribe and find my people. That's part of it. And then I'm really excited because Divine Dialogue is a web series that I'm really excited to begin mm-hmm. finishing a pre-production on that allows me to have faith conversations with faith leaders, thought leaders, influencers, politicians, but these are are conversations that really matter to us and who we are as people. And I think that where I am is that I really wanted to shift from, I'm a writer at heart and I'm always going to write, but I also think that it's important for us to move into different forms of information consumption and media consumption to really give us even more access to hope and to healing because you can scroll your timeline and forget that you're supposed to have it (laughs) so I'm really excited if you follow me on the socials you know at Candice Bimbo you know I'm away for I'm officially away for for Lent I'll pop back in when I have to promote something but like I'm officially away for Lent, but when I come back, I really get to announce this big thing that I'm working on, and I'm working now right. on finalizing things for, for Zion Hill, and just really excited and grateful about the fall of this year, and like bringing a lot of things to life. At Busy at work, but it's a good busy. I'm really excited about it, and anytime I get to like... Right duck out of work and have these kind of conversations, it literally like feeds right. me so that I can go back in and do really do what I know I'm supposed to do.
0: Well, Candace, you definitely deserve all of the great things that's coming your way. Thank you, Thank so, you. so, so much for joining us on Diversity Matters and talking with us and educating us about Black theology, faith, and feminism. Thank you, Candace.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's our pleasure. Thank you for listening to Diversity Matters. If you enjoyed our show and want to hear more, please subscribe to our show, post, talk about, and reshare our show with all of your friends and family. And leave us a favorable rating and review so that it will make it easier for others to find us wherever they listen to podcasts. We cannot do this important work or keep it going without you, so we really appreciate your support. We especially like to thank our episode sponsors, The Walls Torres Group and Giving Cycle. Please check out the great work they do by visiting their websites at www.wallstorresgroup.com and www.givingcycle.org. If you or your company would like to sponsor a Diversity Matters episode, please visit the podcast section of our website at www.whconsultingfirm.com for more information. Diversity Matters is produced by WH Consulting, a firm that provides a wide range of Of management consulting and professional services to individuals and organizations. Original music produced by Sincere Morton Murray. Until next time, peace and love.